You love it. You are great at it. The world needs it. You are paid for it. In this program, we go deep to get answers to essential questions and learn how to develop key skills to live a life that moves you. This is the Beyond the Surface Podcast. And this is Alonso Chejade, your host. And my guest today is Ilana Gutman. She is a learning and development professional. She designs and facilitates organization-wide leadership development to support the growth of individuals, teams, and enterprises. Most of her work mainly consists of helping organizations increase productivity through team building, training, instructional design, and meeting facilitations. She's worked for some large companies, including the Case Family, Case, Casey Family Programs, Nintendo of America, BCU, Employment Security, Habitat for Humanity, Univar, AmeriCorps, and Connecticut and New Hampshire Departments of Children and Families. The reason I wanted to invite uh, Ilana is because I am very interested in improving my learning my learning skills, and I also want to share that with my listeners. What what it is that we can do to be more intentional about making sure that everything we are consuming actually becomes new behaviors in our lives, new skills that we can literally that literally increase our value as professionals. So in this interview, uh, Ilana shares her insights on the power of exper- experiential learning, and we talk about more and dig deep into that subject as far as how that is the best tactic for learning and development. So the reason I invited you is because I am very interested in learning more about learning and development. I think for anybody who is looking into personal development and self-growth, it's just learning more about the topic can help us become more effective as in everything we do. So, but before we got get into the topic, I wanted to ask you a couple of personal questions is to take advantage of this time to also get to know a little get to know you a little bit better. Uh, who was uh, the most influential person in your life growing up? Well, it might sound a little cliché, but I think my parents were really the most influential people for me. They're both really grounded, well-rounded, smart, happy people, and I think that was a model for what I wanted to expect out of my own life. Hmm. That's similar for me too. My my parents, they're it's very nice to have parents that you can look up to and it was pretty great. And then as far as you know, your your childhood your childhood and you growing up, what was your dream growing up? Did you always wanted to be a learning and development professional or is this something that grew on you later in life? I don't think I knew what a learning and development professional was at the time, but I I think my assumption was that I was going to use my brain to make a living. Um, uh, and I think I assumed for a long time that that meant going into law, but at, at some point it became clear that while I liked the idea of school, I didn't really need to go to grad school <laughs> to do what I what really stimulated me. And it was also clear to me that I wanted to be in a profession that, that was other focused and was in a, that I would put myself in a position to be of help to other people. And 
exactly or how did you how is how is it that you ended up um, getting yourself involved in the profession specifically how did that happen well so i started college and at brown university and and then quickly realized that i had no idea what i was doing but it was certainly costing my parents a lot of money and so i decided to take a year off and become an americorps vista member so that's kind of the uh, equivalent of the d domestic peace corps if you will and the position i i took here in seattle washington was as a resource developer for uh, homeless pregnant and parenting teenage girls And it was in that capacity that I was exposed to what we think of now as a ropes challenge course, where you take groups of people out on into the wilderness and you ask them to work together in order to, um, you know, achieve a certain task, often something physical, like getting your whole group over a 12-foot wall or balancing on a log that's very wobbly, things like that. So I was first exposed to the, a rope, the ropes challenge course idea. Um, in that capacity when I was working with teenage kids and it really struck me as something that I wanted to do myself. So I went and got trained as a challenge course facilitator and um, continued to do that really for the next 10 years. So working with a variety of groups who came out to, in this case, an outdoor challenge course setting um, to learn how to work better together. And it was in that context that I really um, fell in love with the notion that people learn best through direct experience and that if you want to work if you want to figure out how to build trust or solve problems or enhance communication any of those things that you really had to do it in order to learn it and so that really became the foundation for my approach to learning that learning is really primarily experiential that you have to do it first and that's how you come to know it and so that was the experience that was the foundation for my professional development. And I started to take those same approaches to experiential education. And instead of doing them outside wearing a hard hat, I did them inside wearing a business suit. <laughs> and so I took those same techniques and started to work for organizations um, as an internal trainer, uh, working for a variety of governmental um, foundations, for-profit and non-profit organizations as a learning specialist. Interesting. The learning and development profession is just fascinating to me and it's such key, important role, especially today. Um, as we're recording this, Microsoft acquired LinkedIn today and I was reading one of the posts that the CEO of LinkedIn wrote about the acquisition and he says, you know, we are moving into times where we're changing so fast and we're some jobs were getting replaced by robots that is going to be incredibly important to uh, for people to adapt learn new skills quickly so so that they don't end up on the side of the road basically as we move forward towards the future basically but for the people who are not familiar with the professional what do learning and development professionals actually do Well, I think there are probably a lot of different answers to that question, but I think as its core, at its core, learning and development is about helping people who are tasked with um, performing a certain job or mastering a certain set of skills, acquire the skills and knowledge they need in order to do it. So 
as you pointed out, if, if someone needs to tool up, for instance, there was something on the radio recently about people who were in the oil industry in Texas needing to retrain and, um, and finding that the renewable energy solar resource, solar energy uh, positions were actually a good fit for them. Well, they have to learn that new set of technology, those new skills. And so a learning development specialist would be someone who could identify, first of all, what were the gaps in knowledge that those people had and um, what was the best mechanism for them to learn or be able to master the skills that they needed to in order to do their jobs. So learning and development is different in, in my belief than training because it's outcome oriented. What is it you need to learn and what's the best way? What is it the you need to be able to do and what's the best way for us to um, help you acquire that new skill and knowledge in order to achieve that. That's interesting because uh, as I was doing my research on the learning and development profession, um, it gets tagged as also training and development as if they were one. So right. it's very interesting that you said that, you know, you, you have a different opinion on that. What would you say is the biggest difference between somebody who solely focuses on training and development versus someone that does learning and development. Right. Well, I think of training as being the mechanism that you use in order to help someone learn. But oftentimes people become wedded to that mechanism. So you do training and you do training by via PowerPoint or you do training via e-learning. Um, but what I'm interested in is what does the learner need in order to get to their goal? And that may be any variety of mechanisms to get there. It's like saying, I want to take a trip to Paris. And someone says to you, great, I have a train. Well, that's, I'm, I like trains, but I live in Seattle and you can't take a train from Seattle to Paris. So I'm going to have to find a different vehicle. I think if you're really clear about what the learner needs, then you, you use that as a starting point for figuring out what is the mechanism you can use to get them there. And that's different than saying, I have a training and I'm going to just impose it on the learner as a, and hope that they get what they need out of it. Mm. Now you've been involved with some learning and development initiatives for some very large companies. Um, I wanted to ask if you could recall one of those days on that you had where you were working on a fun project. What, what would a day look like in the life of Ilana uh, working on a large learning and development profession for someone who is interested in exploring more about this? Well, I'm not sure if I, I, I heard a couple of questions in your question. So um, one is what is what is a day in the life look like? Um, and then the other is what part makes it really fun? <laughs> um, so a lot of what I do starts with working with subject matter experts to understand what it what it is that people need to know or what are the skills and tools that people need to develop in order to be able to accomplish the end goal. So for instance, if the organization that I'm working with, for instance, I worked with the Gates Foundation, which is based here in Seattle. And one of their goals or that I was commissioned with helping them achieve was to help new, essentially grant givers, the people who actually give out the money that, that they have to distribute in the world, um, to help them understand the Gates Foundation as new employees. So I would sit down with 
current employees of the Gates Foundation to really understand what is their job and what do people really need to know in order to be successful uh, grantors. Um, and then based on that information, start to design a mechanism by which new, new employees can get a sense of what they're tasked with. And because my background and my kind of grounding is an experiential education, the fun part of my job is figuring out what kind of primary experience can I design so that those new employees can really get a visceral, immediate experience of what it means to be a Gates Foundation grant giver? So one of the key philosophies behind the Gates Foundation's approach to, um, to making change in the world is called catalytic philanthropy. Now, I could probably do a really beautiful PowerPoint for you about what cata catalytic philanthropy means, and we could define catalytic, we could find ca what a catalyst is, and we could define philanthropy. But instead, what we did was a catalytic science experiment that we used as a metaphor for catalytic philanthropy. So, literally, new employees put on a pair of protective goggles and a pair of protective gloves and, a, and an apron and we got out some chemicals and one of the chemicals represented a, a new potential vaccine distributor um, and the other chemical represented the World Health Organization and we poured them together and we waited and nothing happened. And we all stood there with our goggles on and we waited, we waited, we waited, nothing happened. Okay, so we decided to add a third chemical the catalyst. In this case, the catalyst was the resources of the Gates Foundation. And lo and behold, you add the third chemical and the whole thing explodes. So that was a primary experience that these new Gates Foundation employees had as the basis for understanding their job. They were taking existing resources and interests out in the world and adding the resources of the Gates Foundation in order to create change more rapidly than it would otherwise have happened in the world. And it was using that primary experience of a catalyst that they were able to reflect on what they were charged with as new hires for the new grantors for the Gates Foundation. So that's the fun part of my job is figuring out what kind of primary experience, learning experience can I create so that people don't just hear about it or see it, but they actually do something as a way of making a change in their behavior or understanding. Interesting. Yes, because the, the experience helps connect the learning in the long term better. Right. Which, which that brings me, um, that was bringing me to my, my next question, you know, as far as, at how adults learn best. And you kind of covered that a, a little bit better by with, through experiential learning, basically. What are some other ways? Because, you know, sometimes having access to an experiential learning opportunity has a higher cost, right? So I think I feel people, uh, in my case, for this podcast, I'm trying to dig deep into what you do to learn more about 
what are all the options out there and kind of prioritize how do you go about it, right? Obviously, the the more budget you have, the better learning opportunities you can pursue. What would you say are other ways other than experiential learning that would work best for adults if you had to go from top to bottom? It's funny. I don't think of experiential learning as having a cost to it other than uh, energy, so you and I were talking earlier about Confucius and, um, and the kind of famous quote that you hear quite a bit, which is, um, I hear and I forget, I see and I remember, I do and I understand. Mm-hmm. So if as a learner you were interested in doing so that you understood, you might think about how is it that you could... Um, directly apply what you're, let's say, hearing if you choose to watch a, a TED Talk or you choose to, you know, watch a, a listen to a podcast, um, how do you then apply it in a way that helps you understand or make a change in your behavior? So if you're listening to a podcast about dieting and the person who you're listening to says, um, eating a hamburger right before you run is a really bad idea because it makes you feel sluggish. Well, try it. (laughs) Eat a hamburger, go for a run, and then ask yourself some of the basic experiential questions. And those questions are, um, the first one is just observation. Well, what happened? How do I feel? Well, I got to say, I don't, I don't feel that great. (laughs) So what do I notice about the impact of having a hamburger right before I run? Well, it makes me feel kind of sick to my stomach. (laughs) So now what do I want to try differently in order to get a different result? So what, so what, and now what are kind of the key questions about experiential learning. And I think anybody can ask those questions of themselves based on any primary experience you have. So the next time you go for a run, instead of having a hamburger, you have a glass of water and have your hamburger after you run. (laughs) So ask yourself the same, same questions after your run. So what do I notice? How do I feel? Well, I don't, I feel hungry, but I don't feel, I don't feel bad. (laughs) So what do I notice? Well, you know, having a big glass of water before I run makes me feel kind of sloshy, but I actually have more energy now. I mean, I'm, I'm making all this up and it's a little bit simplified, but I think the, the basis of experiential learning is just that you go do it and that you reflect on it. So the pattern is do, reflect, apply, do, try something out reflect on how it impacted you and what you notice about it, and then apply that learning to the next cycle of, of uh, experience. And that process, which you might think of as kind of heuristic, which is try something, if it doesn't work, adjust it and try something else. That's really all experiential learning is. And I don't think it means you have to, you know, pay $1,000 to go skydiving to realize, you know, something deep within yourself. I think the bottom line is, um, take an idea, try it out, reflect on on what it what that experience was like, and then extrapolate so that you can make some adjustments and try something new. Interesting. It's like becoming your the learning the knowledge guinea pig basically as a way to make sure that you remember in the long term. Because I feel like that's also one of the 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 things that concerns me is I was reading an article about how people in general who are looking to learn new things they you know are 
buying all, all the time books and training courses and all these things. And it's becoming very popular for a lot of uh, self-enthusiastic people who are hungry to grow and they're go-getters where they end up engaging in basically purchasing all these products. But they in reality go in circles because what happens is they buy more than they can actually consume just for the sense of accomplishment. It, it is uh, it's funny. It's kind of like hoarding the opportunity that you may have in the future for consuming the content. And the content that they have, if they just go through it so fast, that nothing really happens. It's just basically, it has, I would say, mini minimal impact in their lives. It's just more motivational, it's inspirational, but it's not, I would say, solid change, solid behavioral change. It's more just wow, I just feel more, more knowledgeable, right? You, 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 you get a sense of... So, you know, this is also a, a big thing with the forgetting curve, right? We When we're introduced to new ideas, I read that, I forgot a, the specific percentage, but we forget most of it without reinforcement and stuff. What has been your experience as far as the best ways to make sure that when somebody in your program, in your initiatives is learning something new, it really sticks with them. So the general gist is, is that I don't think learning is ever passive. That if you listen to a TED Talk and you feel inspired, that's great. But that's not necessarily going to generate behavioral change in any way. Because just listening doesn't do anything to change the way you behave or to improve your skill until you do it or experience it firsthand, there's no way for you to internalize change, especially as adults. You know, we take the easy path. We do what's normal, what feels, what feels um, comfortable to us, things that we're familiar with. And to change our behavior as, an, as adults is really, really difficult. We have to have a lot of incentive to try something different. Otherwise, I'm always going to order the same thing from a restaurant or I'm always going to take the p same path to work. Um, you know, I'm always going to uh, put on the same pair of shoes because they're just what's comfortable for me. And it's one of the re same reasons why we tend to interact with people who are very much like ourselves is it's just more comfortable. And in order to incentivize ourselves as adults to try something different, you really have to make a push. So when I design training, and I will use the term term training, because a lot of what I do isn't necessarily experiential, and especially in our corporate environments, we're very used to passive learning and, and um, things that are PowerPoint-based, um, which is really about watching and listening and not, and not about doing. Um, really, I try to chunk things up into very discrete pieces and intersperse every new piece of content or skill or tool or information with an opportunity for people to discuss it, think about it, um, manipulate it in some way, apply it to their own setting. And sometimes those conversations or those um, uh, exercises in thinking about, okay, so here's a tool. How does this fit into your life? Or where could you apply this immediately in order to uh, test it out and, and see the implications of it? I think by taking things on in, in very small increments and then pausing long enough to reflect on them, even if you don't have an opportunity to jump out of the training room and, and do it ex immediately, to, but it's that opportunity to reflect and then apply that's really going to 
to make for behavioral change. So that's an argument for uh, learning in very small increments and then giving yourself the opportunity to sleep on it, try it out the next day, and then come back for more. Mm. Now, um, I know you, you, you mentioned that you're not a big power, f uh, you're not a big, f a big fan of using slides for, for teaching, but I know, for example, I wanted to talk about the trend of flipping the classroom, something that is happening in the educational system, in some modern <laughs> educational uh, systems where basically they are moving the lectures out of the classroom and they're obviously using uh, animated PowerPoint slides narrated so that the students can consume the content outside of the classroom uh, so that they, when they meet one-on-one -on -one and they have that opportunity to interact, they use that time for a, a two-way communication versus just having people listen. How do you feel about that uh, trend or that strategy as far as uh, learning? I think there are effective ways to use that strategy, but the effectiveness is not just in when you um, front load that information, and front load is just that, that term for giving people inf information in advance of an experience, but that you request or that you give them an assignment to go out and try that experience before you enter the classroom. Otherwise, passive learning is passive, no matter whether it happens in the classroom in the form of a lecture or in advance of the classroom and in form of a, a lecture or PowerPoint. So if, for instance, the pre-work assignment is Um, let's think of an example. Um, I'm going to teach you how to change the oil in your car. So here are the three tools you need, and this is where in your car you locate the oil pan, and I've never changed the oil in my car, so this I'm really stretching here. <laughs> um, and now you're going to follow these three instructions, or these however many instructions I give you, and you're going to try it out. And by the time you get to class, I want you to have attempted to change the oil in your car. Now, this might not be the best example, given that if you fail, you might have trouble getting to class. But the bottom line is, is that if the assignment is not just to digest information, but actually to try it out, then by the time you get to class, the instructor's in a good position to say, so what happened when you tried that at home? And how effectively were you able to understand the instructions? And where did you notice you ran into problems? And what did you do when you got into a mess? And now what would you have done differently with regards to, and depending on what you're teaching, with regards to uh, changing the oil in your car, with regards to how you took in the information that you got, with regards to um, what information were, was missing that you would have otherwise provided to a learner. So I think it's the experience itself that is the valuable part. When you give the instruction, I think is really irrelevant because passive is passive. <laughs> If you're not asking the learner to actually try it out or engage in some way, then you're not putting in the learner in a position to really ingest and respond to the information. Interesting. Now, I, I've been exposed to some educational products because that was the, my next part of the conversation, which was moving into educational products. Basically, somebody has put something together. It doesn't have any human 
contact, right? And what they've done is basically put the slides together, but they designed it in a way where they have check-ins, assessment check-ins, to make sure that the student is comprehending what they're learning, right? And then they move to the next chapter. But you can't move to the next chapter until you basically answer this poll that make sure to make sure that you get the right answers. Otherwise, you have to go back and relearn. How do you feel about that? Is that a better approach or is there anything else we can do? Because I know, for example, right now, uh, a lot of people are looking into uh, sharing their knowledge through educational products, but they want to do it in a way that is scalable for them. They, they don't want to do the one-on-one. The one-on-one, it may be like a side thing. But if we were going to um, make the best out of the tools that we have today to create these educational products, because, you know, Udemy, Linda from LinkedIn, all these uh, educational pl pl platforms are booming because there's obviously going to be a need. And sometimes there's going to be people that don't have access to these facilitators. They may not have the technology to do one-on-one. -on -one. So you're basically giving them the opportunity to, as long as they have a device, they can learn self-based on demand, right? How do we limit it to these barriers, make these products the best we can uh, to make sure that people are actually learning whatever you're sharing and making the best out of it? So I think the question becomes, what is it you're trying to assess? And they're kind of different levels of assessment. So the, the kind of baseline level is, did you like it? So you, you watched, my, um, you watched my, my video on how to bake a cake. How did you like it? And people can indicate, I, I liked it. I didn't like it. I liked what you were wearing, but I didn't like the lighting, whatever it was. And then the next level is, what was the knowledge that you gained? So do you remember what the ingredients to the cake were? Um, did you, uh, you know, do you know how to mix the batter appropriately? Do you remember at what temperature the butter and eggs should be? So that's all about knowledge and, and those things are easy to measure. You can also measure skill through some of the kind of, um, what I would call flatter assessment tools that you're describing. So, um, but it's a little tricky. So how do you measure skill using, um, you know, any, any number of, of um, written questions, right? So you can, you can design questions a little bit um, like, I'm trying to think of an example of how you would, how you would measure a cake baking skill in the form of a question. So really any question that I can think to design is really going to base, be be more focused on, on knowledge. Do you know what, what it means to bake a cake well? But in order to really measure whether you acquired the skill, ultimately I have to let you bake the cake. So I could say in the assessment, go bake a cake and come back and um, check the box based on some of these questions. So um, how tall was the cake that you baked? Did it rise appropriately? How dry was it versus how moist was it? Um, what was the response? And then you have the kind of next level, which is, so, so there's skill, can you bake it? And then there's behavior. When you went to bake the cake, did you follow the instructions or did you, did you do the things that were required to do it? And then the last level 
and this is all based on kind of Kirkpatrick is the is kind of establish some of these levels of of assessment. And then the last one is return on investment. Was the skill or the behavior that you acquired um, was it worth the time you invested trying to um, trying to trying to get to that place? Um, and that's really more of a kind of an organizational question. Was the training that you invested in worthwhile? Did did your employees get to where you wanted them to go? So I would say, based on that, you can really only effectively get to the first two levels of, of assessment, which is, you know, if you're going to do a questionnaire, you can measure how well somebody liked the experience, and you can measure the knowledge that they gained. But beyond that, skill, behavior, and return on investment, very difficult to use those kind of flatter assessment tools um, in order to measure them. Now, you, you can do things where you say, and as I said, you know, go, f go have a primary experience, go try it out, and then report back. And so that's one way that you can use that. But again, you're really dependent, it's really dependent on a primary experience. Go try it. Yeah, figure out the accountability part to make sure that the participant is actually doing everything you're asking them to do to experience what they're learning. Um, right. And then the you know, to extend it's still a more labor intensive process because the answers are never going to be um, multiple choice. You know, what happened? Your, did your cake rise? Your cake got burnt? Your cake uh, tasted terrible, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So that becomes a difficult thing as opposed to when you went to bake the cake, um, what were the things that went well in your experience or what happened? So if we're going to use that experiential um, questioning approach. So what happened when you went to bake the cake? So what did you notice about the process that you used? And now what would you do differently hmm. the next time you go to bake the cake? And you can certainly ask those kinds of questions and the reflect and the self-reflection is as important as whether or not there's ever somebody on the other side reading your responses. So maybe just asking the question itself is a good way to stimulate the learner um, into creating a process for self-development. Now, what are is, are there any benchmarks or any best practices as far as uh, the reinforcement part, which basically, um, when you learn a new skill, obviously you have to have some type of plan after to make sure that you don't forget and it actually becomes a new skill. Is there any specific length of, of when that reinforcement should take place? Because you're not going to be doing the same thing for a long time, right? When when do uh, participants usually get to a point where they get it? You know, I think there is an answer to that, and I don't know what it is. Um, really, people have to practice or implement the skill that they're trying to develop pretty rapidly and I mean within say 24 to 48 hours in order to start to incorporate those new skills and turn it into behavioral change because if you don't apply it immediately then you default to the last thing you did so if the behavior I'm trying to change is I want to stop hitting my snooze button in the morning and somebody, I've just listened to a lecture about all the reasons why mm -hmm. hitting your snooze button is a really bad idea for your circadian rhythm or yeah. I'm making all this up, right? Um, 
if you're, I you're right on point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I wait two days before I stop hitting the snooze button, and you know, I listen to the lecture, and then the next day I hit the snooze button, well, what the chances that I'm actually going to change my behavior are already down to about zero. <laughs> so you're aware, but you're not doing. That's right. So awareness in itself does not lead. To, to behavioral change. It's a first, it's the first, it's a primary experience. It's the firsthand experience that says, this is what's going to cause me to change my pattern of behavior enough um, to actually make a lasting change. Otherwise, it just went in one ear and out the other. So I don't know that it, that answers your question, but there's mm -hmm. a there's a whole science around the the neurology of learning that kind of talks about how it is that we are neurologically predisposed to kind of stay in the patterns that we've created as adults, and what are the pathways you can um, develop in order to interrupt those patterns. Um, but that's kind of a whole different genre yeah well you know i was just thinking you know you're you're going you're someone who is a lifelong learning is moving from book to book from course to course and sometimes we end up in this track where we can't wait for the next book but we haven't even finished the first one and i think uh, what i've what i've learned so far from you is it also requires patience to be okay taking a break after the first chapter to be your own guinea pig for that before you move into the next one and that's literally very hard because you're so excited to move into the next thing just so you can check off and say hey i finished the book right, right? Um let's see the last the the last thing uh, to wrap up here was is there anybody in the industry right now inspiring you well, it's funny because I think I define my industry a little bit differently than this conversation has done the way in which you intend the question. And mm -hmm. and that is uh, the organization that comes to mind is called Play for Peace. Mm. And it's an international organization that uses experiential learning as the basis to build um, relationships across very, very... Um, uh, traditionally, traditional areas of conflict. So Israelis and Palestinians, um, Pakistanis and Indians, um, you know, castes within India. Uh, so, you know, when you think about people who are part of groups or cultures that have um, been fighting for decades, if not centuries, if not millennia, Play for Peace uses the basic tools of experiential education and inviting people to actually interact with each other and try out, in, in this case, literally games and activities which allow them to change their attitudes and behaviors towards each other. And there's no amount of book reading or PowerPoint watching or lecture listening that's going to change those behaviors beyond basic human interaction. So I know when we talk about, when you ask me the question of, who do I really see in the forefront of this industry? My industry is using experiential learning to change the way we behave in the world, whether it's in the workplace or in our day-to-day -day interactions with our families, or in this case, with the people who look different than us, maybe come from a different religion or group or caste. Um, and I think Play for Peace does a re some really, really impactful work using the basic tools of experiential education to change behavior. And my last question, uh, do you have any sources, any websites, publications that you would recommend 
for people who want to learn more about experiential learning and the different ways you could create that experience for yourself. Because I would imagine, I haven't digged deep into that yet, but I would imagine there's just so many ways that you can implement what you're learning. Um, any sources in mind? You know, there's a great website called tiagi.com, T-H-I-A-G-I, I believe is the is the way it's spelled. And I won't, that's a, a an abbreviation of his first name, and I won't actually try to pronounce his first and last name because I'll get it horribly wrong, but tiagi.com is a, a great website with a lot of um, experiential activities that speak to a whole range of outcomes, but it they, it's a whole series of free tools um, online that uh, Tiagi has put together that are available for for people who are interested in learning and development or education in any sense, in any setting, uh, to help people to design activities so that people have a firsthand experience of behavioral change. And I, it, it's a great resource. All right. Well, that was my last question, Elena. Thank you so much. You're amazing. I can't believe you've made time to meet with me at... 6.30 after work, taking care of your kids. That's admirable. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, this was a fun interview. I had so much fun with Ilana. Uh, I'll be including some show notes in my blog, uh, which you can go to alonsochejade.com. Uh, just type it on Google. Even if you misspell it, I should show up on the first results. And it's my most recent blog post, episode number two. And you know, this is being this has been a fun project so far. I'm on my second episode, and this has been a learning experience for me as I try to get better at podcasting. I also learned that I have to be careful with some of the questions that I ask because I don't think nobody, like Ilana says, grows up uh, wanting to be a learning and development professional. <laughs> anyways hope you're enjoying this series and if you have any feedback or any suggestions i would love to hear back from you on the comments on my blog or uh, by leaving a rating on itunes or stitcher i don't really use that much but i know you android device people uh, use that to listen to podcasts okay that's it bye have a great week